Hello and welcome to the Women's Agenda podcast. My name is Angela Priestley. I'm the publisher on Women's Agenda and I'm with our editor-in-chief, Tyler Lambert, who is working on our final newsletter for the year. Hello, Tyler. How are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you? Good, thank you. So on the agenda today, we are going to talk about some of the moments that have moved us. In our FinHack segment, we are going to discuss the record amount of annual leave days that are owing to Australians and a few ideas for how you could actually use some of those days to get your finances in order. And I'm really pleased to have a special couple of interviews this week to round out the episode. We'll be talking to Faye Calderoni and James Morvell, two partners at Hall & Wilcox, and we are going to talk about the future of the workplace around hybrid work, flexible working, and what's happening with sexual harassment in the virtual world. It is a fascinating conversation. Thank you for listening. Tala, are you ready to see the back of 2021? I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, but I am quite excited to have a break and to recalibrate. The last two years have been a lot, but I think they've been a lot for most people and some more than others. So yeah, look, I hope that every Australian can just take a big breather over the next little while because I think we've all earned it really. What about you? Uh, we have definitely earned it. I'm very happy to see the back of 2021. A bit worried about 2022. As we know, obviously, this has been a really tough year for most of us and it's not exactly ending the way we would have hoped. But good things did happen this year and so many beautiful and game-changing things occurred, particularly thanks to some courageous, creative and remarkable women. So we wanted to take some time in this episode to highlight some of those things, some of our really favourite wins of the year. And you know that we do this every week in the podcast and I know from people who listen to the podcast that you do seem to appreciate this segment because we really try to start on that nice positive energy. I might also say that Madeline Hislop has put a package together on our website which does feature these moments and they are just a small sample of moments but a few things that we wanted to discuss. So, Tala, do you want to start us off? Yes, I'm very happy to start us off with Dame Sarah Gilbert, Ange, and I know you kind of want to share some thoughts on that as well. But I think being the co-creator of the AstraZeneca vaccine, which has obviously saved so many lives, it was really seen as the kind of pinnacle of getting the UK particularly out of the first iteration, I guess you'd say, of, of covid Female scientists have been on the front line of this kind of COVID recovery and the development and innovation of these vaccines and particularly Dame Sarah Gilbert's contribution there. It's been phenomenal. I loved earlier this year watching her at Wimbledon, getting that standing ovation. I think it's just been a real, really awesome thing to watch. That would be my moment would be seeing that uh, standing ovation at Wimbledon. It was so moving and just she kind of just stood there and just graciously accepted that in front of a packed crowd. But I wanted to note another incredible female scientist called Catalin Carrico, who I didn't actually know anything about until Rick Morton's piece in the Saturday paper recently. And I encourage you to go and read that. But she is a Hungarian biochemist who really had a tough time. And as Rick puts it, she faced a cruel world until she saved it. Like there's just such a perfect line about her. So she was at the forefront of the mRNA technology, which is the basis of COVID-19 vaccines. And she really had to fight to get that work heard and her interests in that work funded in across different countries as well. But she made it happen. And because of her work, the world really was in a much 
better position for developing these vaccines so quickly. And mRNA technology will be at the forefront of future vaccines and anything when it comes to variants and things like that. We can thank this technology for, for the support we have there. So a little quick mention then. Tala, do you want to go to Ash Barty maybe? Oh, Ash. Yes. Look, we've celebrated Ash on numerous occasions throughout the last year and there have been numerous occasions to celebrate Ash. We mentioned last week, she just has been such a a beacon of hope for everyone during a crappy, crappy time. She just carries herself with such grace and the work she does. And we're so used to sports people, particularly sportsmen, acting badly. And to have, you know, an Australian athlete of such high caliber and you know doing such amazing work and advocating as an Indigenous Australian and just being such an amazing athlete and role model for young Australians is really amazing and obviously you know she took out Wimbledon this year and she became the second Australian in history to win what is probably tennis's most prestigious tournament she held the trophy 41 years after her hero Yvonne Gulagong Kauly last did so and I think again such a proud moment for Indigenous Australia and Australia more broadly to see that. So, yes, we love Ash, I think, is basically the moral to this story. <laughs> yeah, I loved that quote. I hope I made Yvonne proud. It was so touching and beautiful. And to, to see someone be able to thank their role model, their mentor in such a public way, it was amazing. I'm going to go to Anjali Sharma. So 17-year-old Anjali Sharma, who was named as a finalist in the International Children's Climate Prize, the only Australian to be named as a finalist in that prize, in recognition of her work leading other students in a class action against the Morrison government over climate change. So Anjali was the lead litigant in this class action. It included seven other school students that asked the federal court to prevent Susan Lee from approving a proposal to expand the Vickery coal mine in northern New South Wales. And in a world first, the federal court ruled that Lee did actually have a duty of care towards young people in relation to climate change impacts, and it really set a precedent for future cases. So that was a huge win for climate action in Australia and the world, and it highlighted the role that young people have and will will continue to have, uh, particularly in using the court's to instigate real change and to make people accountable for what's going on. Obviously, there are so many young people and there are so many women in the climate movement and I wouldn't obviously be able to have the time to address them all. I did just want to point out, and Jolly, because of that big case and just because of the ramifications and and how far that went internationally. So well done to her. Who have you got next, Tyler? Look, I'm going to jump to Maria Ressa and I think the reason I'm jumping to Maria is because... I feel like independent journalism across the world has really taken a hit the last year, probably the last five years. And seeing someone like Maria, who is a journalist from the Philippines, she heads up a quite prominent independent paper there. Um, She won the Nobel Peace Prize in October in recognition for her journalistic work, defending press freedom and holding the Philippines government to account. And we know that, you know, there have been a lot of issues in the Philippines government with exploitation of power and um, whatnot. She was the only woman to do so. Her newspaper or news website, I should say, Rapier, said the prize was for all journalists of the world, um, noting how difficult and dangerous it is to be a journalist today. And I think maybe just 
On that as well, um, I'll bring in Yalda Hakim, who is the the BBC journalist who also made headlines this year after she was during a live stream was contacted by the Taliban or a Taliban leader and really amazingly and expertly navigated what would have been such a a challenging conversation. And this was really in the first week that the Taliban took over Kabul and all of that was, you know, unfolding. These female journalists, you know, we have so much to thank them for. uh, And especially at a time when it's so hard to get real facts, you know, we need that more than ever. Okay, I'm going to sort of leverage off the journalism angle and go to Frances Haugen, who is the former Facebook employee who accused the company of putting profit over the public good after coming forward as the whistleblower who leaked a cache in thousands of internal documents that confirmed Facebook had done a number of things, among uh, particularly around internal research on the risks of misinformation on the platform, as well as the risks of Instagram on the mental health of young people. And so Francis Haugen, fiercely intelligent and well-spoken. I recently sat and watched a couple of hours of her testimony before Congress for a podcast I was working on, and I was so taken by her purpose, her deep knowledge of data and the power of algorithms, but also her desire to do good. It was just this like fundamental desire to say, I want to make this better. And she didn't want to go and destroy Facebook. She's actually not calling for people not to let their kids use Facebook or Instagram. She's She wasn't sort of there. She was like, no, but we can make changes and these changes are possible. It's not beyond our imagination. And she has good ideas for making it happen to really make the world a safer place. And so much courage and you know we've seen basically Facebook do everything possible to discredit her and she's kind of laughed in the face of them but she has so much grace and dignity and just she so incredibly poised and um, like I say well spoken and to collect those documents to share them with the Wall Street Journal I just can't imagine the courage that that takes. Absolutely. I'm gonna jump to Angela Merkel. (laughs) I like the revelation that Angela Merkel rocks out to some punk rock. That was really, she's the dream. But, I mean, sadly we bid farewell to Angela Merkel this year who has been German Chancellor for the last 16 years. It's hard to imagine that there'd ever be another leader like her. She's just been at the forefront of, you know, some of the world's most important, you know, decisions and and forums and she has really just, stood out um some of those images particularly with with her and trump um will go down in in history i think just she leaves a a really strong legacy in in germany as well her work around immigration and and climate change and and science so i think that's a really sad loss but obviously it was nice to celebrate angler's legacy this year and i think There are so many global female leaders that have led us through COVID in very decisive, empathetic, compassionate ways. And that's been actually one of the weirdly encouraging parts about COVID is just watching how female leaders have navigated this time in crisis in such a different way to a lot of their male counterparts. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) It's been brilliant to watch. Quick business one, Melanie Perkins, co-founder of Canva, their latest capital raise brought the privately owned Australian startup to a valuation of US $40 billion. 
a lot of billions there. <laughs> so instead of hoarding the gains, Perkins and her co-founder husband, Cliff Obrecht, have pledged to give away 30% of their combined 36% stake. Uh, so they're giving that away to the Canva Foundation to be used for charitable causes. Her quote in announcing that was, if the whole thing was about building wealth, then that would be the most uninspiring thing I could possibly imagine. Uh, we loved it, Melanie Perkins. We loved hearing the success of Canva. And I think to bring more of that into business and startup success can only be a good thing. Yeah. I'm going to jump to sport again. So Madison Di Rosario, who we interviewed actually on this season of the Leadership Lessons podcast. Um, but Madison has just had such an amazing year, much like Ash Barty. Um, she won Australia's first track and field gold medal at the Tokyo Paralympics, taking out the women's T53 800 metres. And if you go back and listen to that podcast that we recorded with her, she's the work that she does um, advocating for people with disabilities and, you know, women in sport more broadly is just unreal. She has been such a role model for many years now, but she has had a mammoth year of achievements. Yes, very much so. Okay, I think we can finish off with, so Grace Tame named Australian of the Year. It's really hard to believe that was only this year because Grace Tame has been so vocal. She has done and achieved so much with that platform this year and she is so great on social media and it's been incredible to see her work and the profile and what she can do with that platform, how it has risen this year. Obviously a massive moment that started back in January this year. I wanted to note the March for Justice also, of course, massive moment. Incredible to watch in terms of coming out of COVID and just to see thousands and thousands of people marching all over Australia for that cause and that really sits with us I think as kind of a benchmark almost of the year of change and how we will move forward and leverage those moments to really push for so much particularly as we go into the next federal election. Yeah I think that was the most powerful moment of this year and just watching that collective reckoning of women just calling time on what has been going on, not only in parliament, but, you know, in society, in workplaces, in the home, enough is enough. And I think that that was exactly what that march, you know, was was all about. But obviously it stemmed off the courage of women like Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins in coming forward. Thank you so much to Grace and to Brittany and to all the amazing victim survivors who have come forward and I would just like to note quickly that we're so thrilled that Grace Tame will be joining us as a keynote speaker at next year's Leadership Awards. Yes, the Women's Agenda Leadership Awards happening again in 2022. Okay, so that is just really a teeny tiny tip of the iceberg when it comes to all the moments that moved us and I know that moved all of you listening as well. I did want to make a quick mention just of all women, all of you who made this year what it was, who made this year better for those who needed caring, for those who needed empathy, for those who needed really good and sound leadership. Shout out especially also to those in early childhood education, to teachers, to those in healthcare, to those who delivered vaccines, all those industries that very much are still underappreciated and undervalued and carry female-dominated workforces, workforces that are at massive risk of burnout if they haven't already burnt out. But these 
massive shout out and thank you to all of those in those caring sectors. You defined this year, you made it what it was, and you will make us in a put us in a much better position for 2022. So thank you. Massive thank you. All right. So I do want to cross to an interview that I recorded just earlier this week with two partners from Holland Wilcox. So Faye Calderoni, who is an absolute expert in employment law, and we've featured Faye a number of times. We've known Faye for quite a few years, and she has been a recipient of uh, the Emerging Leader in the Legal Sector Award almost, maybe it was like 10 years ago, so it was a while ago now. She's at Holland Wilcox. The conversation also features James Morvell, another partner at Holland Wilcox, who have also known for a number of years, who is really integral in their diversity and inclusion space, along with Faye. And I've been lucky to work with these two and also the firm as we've we rolled out a series of Disrupt the Status Quo. We've been doing it for a few years. We run these roundtables. We take an, a topic that is just interesting in that moment that particularly needs another look at it and we get a bunch of people around the table to talk it out, to nut it out, and then we produce a couple of feature stories based off that. We've looked at disrupting the status quo around women in media. We've looked at the need to get more women included in STEM, more women included in AI particularly, which was a fascinating one that we did last year. Uh, also to get more men working flexibly which is something that we addressed in June this year, just before the lockdowns in Melbourne and Sydney. And I got to catch up with them this week because we wanted to discuss what the workplace looks like going forward from here, because obviously there's been so much change and shifts in how we work in remote working and the opportunities around flexible work and the number of men working flexibly now and the number of men taking uh, paid parental leave. And as you'll hear in this conversation, James talks about taking, I think it was six months of paid parental leave and hear his experience about that, particularly in line with COVID as well. But we talk about the hybrid workplace and some of the risks that might be there around gender equality that we do need to watch out for. We also talk about sexual harassment in the virtual world. And Faye has some particularly interesting things to share there that we definitely need to be aware of. And I hope to see more employers taking note of. So we'll cross to that conversation now. I might get you to start maybe just by introducing yourself and what this year has been like for each of you in terms of work and how it's adjusted your expectations of how you work as well. And when I say this year, I, of course, mean the past two years. I'm still saying the past year, but it has been almost two years. So, James, maybe starting with you. Thanks, Ange. I actually was on parental leave when the pandemic hit. So, I was not in fact working. I was on six months parental leave with my six-month-old son and uh, his mother brought her laptop home in about you know February March and said, "Well, I'm here for a while," and a while became a long time, and then it became time for me to return to work, which I'd envisaged would be back to the office, meeting clients and colleagues, and re-establishing myself. And in fact, what it involved was turning on a computer, learning about Zoom, not seeing any one of my colleagues or clients for the best part of another six months or thereabouts when we had small breaks in our lockdowns. So it was very, very challenging. And I was very anxious about a number of things. Finding nappies was the initial anxiety. And then whether in fact I'd have a a practice and something to come back to was something that really did keep me up. But the remarkable, I suppose, resilience of people has shone through in that we adapted very quickly to the technology and we sort of just got on with it. So I sit back here now and thinking, I don't know how into the new year I'm going to adjust by being in the office more than I was just because it's a new routine that I'm not used to. 
Yeah, I imagine it's probably not the way that you intended to return from parental leave. Okay, so Faye, what about you for the past two years? I mean, I know that it's a little bit different because you've had the added bonus, I guess, of remote learning. I don't know what the bonus is of uh, whether it's a toddler or a remote learning at home. I actually have a bit of both, so <laughs> I can see that uh, neither is particularly ideal, but we've come to learn how to live with it. How has it been, Faye? It's been a juggle. I mean, professionally, the practice has been obviously the busiest it's ever been. I mean, as an employment lawyer, everything from, you know, we started with stand downs to job keeper to then COVID safe plans to mandatory vaccination. So if you look at all of those things as being sort of quite instrumental to everything that you know has been happening across the country that's been reflected in the practice and it's been hugely busy but yeah at the same time the boys obviously have been uh, home learning they're now 10 and 15 and whilst you know some kids are self-starters mine are not they're not as needy as of course you know toddlers would be in terms of hands-on but I think you know the more hands-off you are the less they do the 10 year old was I was checking his slides at the end of the day you know with my my minimal supervision and it transpired that he'd been deleting slides that he couldn't be bothered doing so so sometimes you know not enough supervision wasn't ideal but look it's obviously been a privilege and I don't take it for granted to be able to be working at maximum capacity in fact you know beyond maximum capacity at times and still be able to you know have the children at home and I'm also immune compromised so to have had you know, safety during a pandemic and to be able to work at full capacity, like that's a bit of a blessing really. Yeah. Faye, I mean, we last met in person back in June. I think it was June. It would have been just before the Sydney lockdown. I remember at the time Melbourne had just gone into lockdown and we made a comment about our Melbourne colleagues because, James, you were supposed to be at that event as well. I don't think we knew that we were in for like another you know for four months and we kind of were speaking about this whole idea of life post lockdown which seems so naive or something back then but I mean we want to be able to talk about life post lockdown and even today it can still feel a bit naive in itself when we're talking about new variants that are coming out and particularly the case numbers that we're experiencing but we spoke about the hybrid work gender gap and we had a roundtable discussion which we published the details of across women's agenda And at the time, we were looking at how, I mean, this hybrid work gap, whether or not it could perpetuate existing gender inequalities or existing elements of expectations on male-female roles at work and at home, where would you both stand on that? The hybrid work gender gap, how do we make sure that it's not creating a gap in terms of a certain type of person going to the office while a certain type of person possibly in the same position stays at home? Because I still feel at the end of the day that particularly in, in certain industries, FaceTime can be quite important and it can be quite important when it comes to determining who gets promoted, who gets a bonus, not necessarily as it should be, but you can see how that can happen. So where are you both standing on that? What would you see I guess some of the risks there. Yeah we certainly had a glimpse of what post-lockdown world will look like in terms of when we did come out of lockdown for at least a temporary period and you know in Sydney more than Melbourne obviously there was a trend that I could see and sort of heard about anecdotally that there were more men returning to the office 
than women. Now, I don't know whether that's because of homeschooling or, you know, sort of concerns about, you know, kids with COVID and to what extent COVID played a factor in that. But certainly the policies and the general position of most employers was to mainstream flexible work for everyone and it was an opt-in if you wanted to work from home on you know what what that looked like obviously varies within different workplaces and whether it needs to be structured and you know various other things but there's quite a bit of flexibility and more than there used to be now the risk of if this is a long-term trend and some early studies both in the UK and Australia suggest that there's at least a 10% gap in take-up of flexible work between men and women, women obviously taking it up more. If that trend continues and there is a bias towards those that are in the office and there is a bit of a concept of you know, out of sight, out of mind, then it naturally follows that you know, the people that are in the office get better work, they're more likely to get better results as a result of that work, pay rises, promotions follow, which then structurally creates the inequity or the very inequity that we're trying to negate by mainstreaming flexible work. And I, I think that's that's a real risk unless we are clear and deliberate in our strategies for hybrid workplaces and, and mainstreaming flex unless we are very deliberate to counterbalance any sort of antiquated views in terms of you know men taking up flexible work because we know that they are more, more likely to suffer adverse consequences or be perceived to be lacking in ambition or less dedicated to their careers when they take it up and that it's very critical that there is role models like James um, who are you know leading by example and and that are taking up parental leave which we'll get to of course but also you know flexible work and and really are demonstrating from a leadership level that it is the expectation. Mm. Yeah James that kind of naturally brings the next question to you and to ask about paid parental leave. I think we've seen a massive shift in men taking paid parental leave just even in the past year. And I think a lot of that has come from the active push by particularly employers, but also at an advocacy level as well to increase the number of days, weeks available for everyone to take paid parental leave, regardless of whether you're a primary, secondary carer, male, female, regardless of how you bring a child into the world. But you seem to have been a little bit ahead of the curve because this was last year that you took that quite extended paid parental leave. What was that like at the time? I mean, Faye referred to you as a role model. Had you seen other men in the organisation taking paid parental leave? Had you seen other people amongst your peers or other groups? And how have other people responded to you? Do you think that you've – I know you might not call yourself a role model because that's a hard thing to call yourself, but do you think you may have inspired other people as well and supported part of the movement in taking it that way? Well, the genesis for me taking it, in fact, was my partner and I just agreed that if we were ever fortunate enough to have be in a position to have a child, then we'd split that first year. And we structured our finances and we structured our, our home loan and various things. Um, this is prior to rental leave being paid, or at least in a substantial form, so that we could we could accommodate that. And that was a sort of a bonus in many respects when, in fact, our parental leave policies progressed as rapidly as they did to being you know, more generous in terms of the payment side. I don't see myself as a role model. It was just that was the agreement we forged ourselves and also something we'd both appreciate and would set us up well to hopefully fulfil a, you know, a fairly genuine you know, co-parenting model going forward, having had that six months each of experience with an infant. 
it was an incredibly rewarding experience for me, but I do have regrets, and I've spoken about this quite a bit lately as we're pushing for further change, Faye and I, in terms of our own policies, and not just around the financial incentives or uh, available, but around the way we do it. So I regret the fact that I didn't transition out as smoothly and as quickly as I should have. So I stayed involved in two fairly significant transactions that I thought they were almost done and that I was needed to be in there to help get them over the line. And I don't think I did play the best role as a parent for that first couple of months. And I I look back with some sadness on that. Thankfully, Christmas came and sort of drew a line in the sand. And so I think I was much, much more focused on what I should be focused on for the remaining part of my leave. So that's something I think we can do better for everyone who takes parental leave, be they mothers or fathers, primary or secondary carers. I just think there's so much room for improvement in the way organisations can support people on the way out, keep in touch with them in a meaningful way and maybe even a fairly bespoke way, depending on what that person wants and needs in their role, and then really support them in that transition back. I mean, my transition back was just difficult because COVID had just hit. So it was always going to be messy and everyone did the best they could. Now, whether or not as to the role model, I don't know if it's made a difference. I think the difference maybe it's made Ange to others. And there have been a number of male colleagues who have taken parental leave, in, particularly in my area, since that time. It's just that it, it can work and that my career wasn't interrupted. I didn't really suffer in much of a way and that the client base I had beforehand was still there. People had been terrific. Just the reflection that it can work and it did work is probably the thing I take the most pride out of going forward. Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting what you said, James, because it sounds like maybe, and I know this isn't unique to your firm, this would be everywhere, but there might still be some cultural things that need to be ironed out in terms of making sure that fathers who take paid parental leave are treated the same way as mothers who take paid parental leave in that you do make sure that they've got that space, that they're not necessarily working on transactions and things like that. Because I can see that you, you might enter into it in a different way because there isn't that sudden need to be, say, breastfeeding the child or recovering from the birth process or whatever it is. It's quite a different transition, but we need to make sure that fathers have the space to have that transition correctly. I want to ask about, I mean, we've come to this podcast, we're having this discussion because it is the end of the year and it's the end of a year where we've seen significant continued transitions regarding how we work. And obviously a lot of these were put in motion last year, but they've really been cemented into 2021. And now the great question is obviously what happens into 2022. I want to get both of your feelings on the great resignation this idea that there's been these huge shifts in talent occurring. There's definitely data to support this in the United States. It's a little less so here in Australia. However, in certain industries, you do hear anecdotally about a lot of movements occurring, a lot of difficulties obtaining staff, retaining staff, that kind of thing. To hear where you think we're at, is this a great resignation? Is this a great burnout? Is it a great adjustment? Uh, James, do you have any thoughts on that, where we are? Yeah, look, I do. I think probably the most critical reason why I think you know, so many people are considering and, in fact, activating a career change is it's one of the few things we can control in our lives at the moment. So we can't control our ability to travel. We can't control our ability to really take a meaningful break from work. So it seems to me the one thing that people who are you know, have had a really difficult two years, have worked hard or, you know, have been up and down with their work due to the the COVID impact on their particular profession is that they can, in fact, change jobs. And remarkably, in many respects, our economy has done so well, notwithstanding the greatest impact on life that, that I can certainly recall in my lifetime and probably the last 50 years, 
economies remain buoyant and due to that sort of strong you know, commercial front, there are job opportunities around. So I think there, it does then put pressure on employers, no doubt, to clearly around remuneration, but also on making our places a great place to work, which is made even more difficult when our places have been a, you know, a place to work virtually for, again, you know, the best part of two years. It's definitely, I think, the great resignation. It would be, I think, remiss to not acknowledge the burnout that particularly, you know, sort of parents are facing, like that juggle has been really difficult. People are exhausted. Our personal and professional lives have sort of merged into one and, you know, we haven't really had the supports and the outlets that we've been accustomed to. And so there's a lot of sort of joys being sucked out of our lives. And we've also lost, in some respects, that stickiness to the workplace, which comes with you know, culture, with connection, with interaction. Yes, we've got heaps of, you know, sort of interactions on Zoom and, you know, we're trying to learn new and better ways to interact. But I think there is a really good science behind the hybrid model and that working from home some of the time, but being able to go back in and interact with colleagues and build those connections and rebuild trust in many ways with the workforce is very important. So I think some of that has been lost. So between the burnout and the lack of connection, we are you know likely to see people re-evaluating their career options. I think there's a real risk for employers that don't make mainstream flexible work going forward that people will start to think I can't go back to my life if you recall back to parental leave as much as I love my job and I'm guessing that you might be the same remember that lead up to when parental leave ends and you start to think about what it's going to be like going back to work and how you're going to do it how am I going to manage I think there is that same sort of mindset happening now because we're coming out to the end of you know what has been an era hopefully the end of it and we've been working in a particular way and now we've got all this time to contemplate apprehend angst about how am I going to get back to my old life and it's in that contemplation period I think that we suffer more anxiety than when we actually do things. Like when you do something, your adrenaline kicks in, you know, sort of the the wheels start to move and we get on with it. So I think there's been too much of this contemplation phase for people as well. Like I, I've been thinking about it and and that's why I think they're re-evaluating career options. So employers that don't re-engage, don't demonstrate that they're going to be flexible moving forward, don't provide people with a purposeful connection to what they're doing, meaning in their work. If you don't have those conversations to reconnect your workforce, then you're going to lose them, particularly in that long contemplation period. Yeah, I think that's a really great way to look at it as well, that idea of when you return from parental leave, that sense of feeling like, how am I going to manage this? Because I feel like that's occurring here as well, because I think many of us are contemplating remote learning. Again, that's not beyond the realm of possibility that could happen again in the future. So we're thinking, well, what if that happens again? What if we're in a period of isolation? Or what if COVID impacts our family? How will I go about you know, returning to an office somewhere? How will I go about living the life that I was living back in 2019 and there's also I think when it comes to children we've adjusted things I think a lot of people I know they've adjusted their out-of-school activities the amount of days that their kids are going to before and after school care and things like that they've 
adjusted that to take account for their changing periods and the fact that they have a little bit more scope to be working from home. So I think that's interesting. And it comes back to also James's point as well is that idea of like what we can control. I love that, that sense of this is there's so much out of our control. Maybe our career planning and what we do now is something that is at least a little bit more within our control or it's something that we can be focused on and taking control of and thinking about right now. I thought that was a great way to look at it. So I wanted to finish on looking at sexual harassment risks in remote work and Faye, maybe just starting with you and then James, maybe to hear your thoughts on this as well. We've seen research highlighting how sexual harassment isn't necessarily decreasing despite the fact more people are working from home. This research varies and it particularly varies across different industries, but the whole thing is that you know sexual harassers are actually finding new ways to, to do what they do and also that workplaces are not necessarily keeping up with the need to update their policies and training to account for a stronger virtual working life. This is very much in your area of work phase. So have you seen any issues around this? Are you seeing that there is a problem potentially in policies, procedures, that kind of thing, training being out of date here? Yeah, I don't think many people have updated. I've got to say that it's something that we are dealing with more at the back end and we haven't had a great deal of instructions or sort of proactive compliance work happening on this, although, you know, the changes to respect at work legislation obviously have uh, prompted some action and some encouragement of our clients to look at it. We really need to look at appropriate behaviour policies across all aspects of, you know, work life and in much the same way as, you know, couple decades ago or you know we we went back and looked at how people interact in social gatherings and Christmas parties and things like that you know there was a time when a lot of people were sort of updating policies to reflect you know the broadened definition of work and as the case law was developing and then when social media came out you know people were you know developing social media appropriate behavior policies and now with the remote working change everyone's got flexible working policies and they do refer back to sexual harassment policies but I almost think we need to have much broader parameters for appropriate workplace behavior and be less about where it's happening but more about what's happening and why it's inappropriate and provide ensure that the examples reflect that as well because they don't necessarily a lot of those policies that are a little bit outdated now you know sort of reflect um, you know what's not appropriate and you will notice that there isn't a great deal in there about inappropriate workplace conduct the other thing I've turned my mind to is I'm noticing the trend in terms of a lot of the cases that we're seeing that have occurred during remote work I think or we can at least suspect or reasonably suspect have involved substance abuse or some a degree of intoxication and of course with people you know we've talked about the great burnout we've talked about everybody's tired everybody's stressed no one can escape I think a lot of people are reaching for a beverage at five maybe earlier maybe later but whatever whatever the case is conduct is slipping as the night goes on interactions both in terms of sexual harassment claims that we're seeing and sort of you know the inappropriate context of messages or people are calling people up at an inappropriate hour and um, it's quite clear that not only is their conduct inappropriate they're probably under the influence of something when they're doing it it's a very difficult one because the lines have blurred in terms of our home and work life but if we're going to insist on appropriate workplace behaviour, I think that there needs to be some consideration given to, you know, regulating the use of alcohol while you're 
working regardless of where it is in the same way that we wouldn't let someone intoxicated walk into the office and start to interact. I think that needs to be the case when working from home. And I don't know if you've seen any, but I haven't seen a great deal of policies that are addressing that. And then just one final observation, which is kind of a consequence as well. I think that we're seeing a lot of inappropriate workplace behaviour at Christmas parties at the moment. And we see that every year. We all know that. But it is far escalated this year. People haven't been out for a long time. People have been cooped up and it's almost that control and release syndrome. You know, the more you control something, the more people are releasing. I think there has been a lot of blowouts this year as well. As people maybe also started returning to social interactions after having a period without them. Wow, I hadn't thought about that. And I think that's interesting what you said about alcohol at home because we've got this issue of the blurred boundaries between work and home, obviously, and it would be hard, I imagine, for workplaces to regulate how they work from home (laughs) because we are talking about alcohol if it should be banned at work events and that sort of thing. But here we are at home, it would require organisations to actually put clear boundaries on when staff should be answering emails and stuff like that, which may actually be better for the staff, but we'll see. But okay, I want to finish up, James, and this is a bit of an on-the-spot question, but I'd love to ask you both very briefly, any predictions on where you think work is going next year based on this conversation? Well, uh, Ange, I don't think we're going back. I don't think we're going backwards to a world where we just go straight back to the office and we're there five days a week. Like for many people, the good old days. I think for many of us, we did enjoy those days, but we realised there are so many beneficial aspects of being able to work flexibly to a degree. So I think people are going to, and as I think has happened in the last couple of months, I think people have appreciated the the time together and, and there's been great energy in our office when people have been together. So I think, and maybe this is being glass half full, I think we're going to have the best of both worlds next year where we are going to have people back, you know, say up to you know, maybe up to half their week, some a bit more, some a bit less, um, and then there'll be people with special circumstances. So they'll be in the office that time and then we'll be we'll be home or we'll be remote and we won't be working you know, nine to five or eight till six, but we'll be doing blocks of time in between our other life commitments or other life choices, be it a yoga class or a tennis lesson or taking a child for a swimming lesson or something like that at a time that works for the child as well as working for the parent. So I think, and I am being optimistic, I think next year will be great. And I just hope that the virus leaves us to do that and doesn't keep throwing unexpected restrictions at us. Because I think otherwise, we'll adapt and make a really great, you know, sort of working environment for people moving forward. Yeah. What about you, Faye? Yeah, I think absolutely. Flexible work is here to stay. And as a generalisation, I think that there will be certain organisations that will do very well out of this period. Those that continue to evolve their strategies, those that are deliberate to make sure that it is mainstreamed and that we do have shared cared models and the ones that consider, you know, how this will help them get a competitive advantage and, you know, build a high performance culture and build a more inclusive organisation. I think they will be winners out of this this pandemic because there will be, and, and I have seen, there are a lot of organisations trying to go back to the old ways and their employees are resisting. And I think there will be realignment and, you know, people will be reconsidering their options um, if that is the case. I think you've got to move with the time, otherwise you'll be left behind. 
Thank you to James and Faye for sharing their thoughts and ideas there to help us close out the year. And it'll be really fascinating to see what 2022 brings. Now, to finish up, we do have one final FinHacks segment for the year. So we will cross to that segment now. So the FinHack segment is supported by Superhero, the app that makes investing accessible and affordable for everyone. And each week we look at a new data point or story that has come out around finances or something related to finances and talk about a couple of quick hacks around that. This week, a bit of a different one because obviously many Australians, we hope, are preparing to take some kind of break. We have looked at research that Roy Morgan released uh, in the past few days, finding that Australians are currently owed record amounts of annual leave. 185 million days of annual leave are owed to Australians in total, which is such a big number. It doesn't really, it's hard to kind of think about what that means. But many of us have been uh, storing up that annual leave because obviously we haven't really had a huge amount of places to go over the past couple of years. So we wanted to take a quick look at what we could do with taking that time off, how it might be able to support our finances in different ways. So I will go first, but Tyler, I will then cross to you to suggest a couple of quick ideas. But my first one was this idea of seeing the importance of time out to really get some clarity around your finances, to see where you are spending, where you might be overspending, to be able to have just that time and that space outside of your day-to-day routines to think about what changes you might be able to instigate as a result of that. Also, I mean, I don't think we can go past the fact that taking time out and particularly taking time out from work, and we spoke about this last week in terms of the benefits to mental health that that will bring, that it will only make you stronger and more ready to go about your working routine, your caring routine, whatever else is happening in your life when you do return to that sense of normal, which can be so important in supporting your finances, maybe even supporting the work that you're doing, supporting your ambitions in that work, if that's to get a pay rise, to get a promotion, to pursue another industry, whatever that is later on. Any thoughts, Tyler, from you? I mean, I think those are the two big ones, to be honest. Like, you know, taking time to recalibrate in whatever form that looks like, you know, even if that means literally vegging out on your couch for a couple of weeks, you probably need it. Having that time to just be quiet, be still and potentially like reflect on some of the things that will make your life better in 2022, to organise some things, to think about the ways that you might be wanting to invest your money or save your money, um, what you might want to be doing with your money, I think is really important. And I know for myself, you know, I just get bogged down during the year. There's just endless reams of of life admin that you just get caught up in and you don't have that time. There's never a big, you know, chunk of time in your year to really go take stock. This is what I'm going to do. These are the measures that I'm going to take. You know, I want to look into my super. I want to I want to consolidate things. I, I think that that's a really important um, part of it. I know it's not the sexiest part of taking a holiday, clearly not. Um, hopefully you can get to the beach as well and, um, and you know, sink a few wines. But I do think that it, it is good to just recoup that way and to, to plan for, for the next year. Um, and we know that women have really 
faced acute burnout over the last 24 months. So now is the time to look after yourself as much as you can. I know it's still tricky. I know that there are still many challenges that people are facing, but as much as you can take that time out to, to just be by yourself and, and um, look after yourself. Absolutely. So thanks again to Superhero for bringing this week's segment and for supporting the podcast over the past few months. You can learn more about your options at superhero.com.au or download the Superhero app. Speaking of time out, I think it's time to take some time out. So Tyler, I will wish you well uh, into 2022. I'll be talking talking to you later on today. I'm sure hopefully we'll talk on Christmas. I'm sure you'll have something to say. Yeah, no, look, Um, it's been such a beautiful year in lots of ways. I know it has been a challenging one as well, but I'm forever grateful for the work that we do on Women's Agenda. I'm forever grateful for my partnership with you, Ange, and our amazing team. We need to to look at the things that we we can be grateful for, that we can be optimistic about as well. Um, and just well done to everyone. I know it sounds a little bit patronising, but uh, I don't mean it to be. I think just like everyone has just done a fucking hard gig over the last couple of years and we all just need a break and 2022 you know here's to it we can get back onto a better road (laughs) here's to it so thank you for listening to the women's agenda podcast a reminder that you can access all the stories that we have discussed on womensagenda.com.au where you can also subscribe to our newsletter which will be on a bit of a break over the next couple of weeks but we'll be joining you again in January you can keep updated with our website there's news stories as they come through as well as our Instagram account and Twitter account particularly so they're at Women's Agenda so thank you for a great year thank you for everyone who supported Women's Agenda this year our readers our our sponsors and advertisers obviously um, all our contributors and especially to our incredible team and to Alison Ho who is on the call right now and producing this episode who has done an amazing job stepping up to doing all the podcast that we are now recording on Women's Agenda and of course to our team of journalists uh, Jesse Tu and to Madeline Hislop as you know we're always quoting their stories and they're always bringing us brilliant content so thank you to the full team. <laughs>